Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, uh, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation and also host of the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Richard Raposa. He's a Divisional Vice President of Vascular Clinical Development at Abbott. So we're going to talk about uh, his work. So Rich, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Good, yeah. So tell me about this optical, yeah, this optical coherence tomography. Uh, it looks like that's uh, what you're working on. Uh, please let me know about your, your research and your work. What's it about? Well, <clears throat> it's an instrument that um, shoots uh, infrared laser into your arterial system, primarily the corner. And then uh, you pull it back, and uh, it takes a spiral picture of the pullback of the arterial wall. So when you clear blood, you can see right into the wall, and therefore, in great detail, you can see what the composition of the wall is. You can also make dimensional measurements, uh, length and diameter, for example, and you can then get a much more educated uh, view of uh, what's inside and how you should treat it, if you should treat it at all. So would this be used for looking at like blood vessel integrity near a clot or upstream or downstream of it, or what would you use it for? Exactly. So if you, for example, uh, wanted to see what the cause of a heart attack is, uh, you go in there and you see how much clot there is. You can clear the clot and you can see behind the clot. You can get an idea of what caused it, what's behind it, what's inside the wall of the vessel, because oftentimes the disease is inside the walls of the vessel. And you can find the spot that actually ruptured and generated the clot so that you can repair it. So what interesting things have you noticed by looking at the pictures and sample? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've seen many of them. What's, what's interesting that you didn't know before? One of the things that actually happens <clears throat> is that uh, the normal way of treating vessels are the most common, actually, is that um, people use x-ray. So they would inject a dye into the vessel that's radiopaque. And then you uh, take um, a camera and you look at where the dye is going. So... It's a two-dimensional image from the outside looking in, from the outside of the body. And all you can see is the silhouette of where the body is going in the tube. But you can't see what the wall is like. You cannot make accurate dimensions, etc. So physicians take a guess at what they're looking at based on experience and teaching and learning in med school. And then they take a guess at the diameter and the length that they're looking at so they could choose a product to treat it with. But oftentimes, uh, a guess is very wrong. And that can lead to uh, future problems with the implant. So what we're looking at now is uh, quantifying the amount of air that really is there in these vessel assessments that are done only with what's called angiography or x-ray and uh, showing physicians that to make a much more informed decision, they really need to get inside and look at what's going on. This is really cool. So is the... Um... Is it a camera that's threaded into the vessel that turns in a, you know, like a 360 degree view or how does it work? So imagine a very small, long wire 
And the overlap wire is a very small catheter. So we're talking maybe one and a half millimeters in diameter and very long. So it goes in through either your arm or your leg and goes right around the, the aortic arch, right into the coronary and down. So the catheter is probably about four feet long, five feet long, but the diameter is only 0.5 millimeters. So Inside the tip of that catheter, there's a diode that generates the uh, laser. And that diode is mounted on an apparatus that spins. So it's essentially like a radar catching the image all around it. And what you do is you hit a button and the system will shoot a dye that's clear into the artery just to clear the blood off because the blood will obstruct the view. So you clear the blood and you start moving it backward. Automatically, this is all automated. So you move it backward and it takes two seconds. Uh, then you go back to the computer screen and then you can literally toggle your way back and forth inside the vessel. You can look at three dimensional reconstructions of the inside. You can point and click to make measurements of um, any diameter in any direction or any length. You readily can identify if there's like pieces of calcium in there. A lot of people have very calcified arteries and that uh, interferes with the way you treat it. You can see if it's clogged. You can uh, see if it's uh, uh, fat or lipid that's actually in there and about to rupture. So you can actually prevent future events if you actually found something that um, was uh, in danger of rupturing. So that, that's, that's really how, cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite revealing when you can find in people's arteries. How long does it take to go over a certain linear distance you know, if you wanted to get a picture of, you know, the heart um, and all the vessels going into it, coming out of it, let's say to, you know, six inches beyond and six inches be- before, how long would a scan like that take, let's say? You know, total, total, I think, when you, by the time you prep everything and you're in the vessel with all the instruments you need to have that are normal for the procedure, adding this scan to the artery tends to add another maybe three or four minutes because uh, it's a matter of advancing it through and hitting the button, like I said, so you can inject the dye to clear the vessel and pull it back. The pullback is only two seconds. And then, hey, if you're an expert, you could analyze what you see on the screen in an additional two or three minutes. And so maybe five minutes later, you would have a much better picture. But, well, is, uh, is it recording everything you do so you don't have to analyze it in that moment? Or do they analyze it in that moment and they can look at it later? Yeah, the point is to analyze it in the moment so you can decide what to do. Because you're not going to get a chance to get back in there in a while, right? So uh, while you're there, the patients typically have been consented. You know how you have to sign everything before into an operation. Uh, they've been consented to say, to say yes to uh, treatment in case they find some. So the physician knows that the patient's okay with getting treated. Some patients occasionally say, you know, just go in there and see, and then we can talk and schedule another to get in there and fix it if I want that. But that's really rare. Most of the patients say, yeah, sure, go in and look and if you find something treated. So, but, but it really so right now, if you, have a, if you have a blockage, they're injecting dye and looking from the outside that you said 2D, then going in there and placing a stent. Um, is this going to be an adjunct to placing a stent? Like you review the site first? And then you can get better stent, stent placement, for instance? Yeah, exactly. So, so how it goes is um, 
you can show up in the cath lab and that, you know, with a cardiologist that treats you, you can show up there two ways. Either you make an appointment in advance because you've been having chest pain and you don't feel well, and then you go and get checked and you do the treadmill test, everybody goes through that, and, and there's something weird or positive in the treadmill test, and you come back to the cardiologist and they go, well, you know, I'm gonna have to get in there and look. That's one way, that's what's called stable disease. You're not, you know, you're, you're not, um, experiencing the best quality of life, but you're not in immediate danger. On the other hand, you get a heart attack and you show up in the emergency room instead. Either way, you're in the cath lab. And then that's when the physician has to decide what it is that she or he is looking at first. And second, what are the dimensions of your artery in the healthy segments so they can choose the stent size and length to put into you? Because if it's not the right size, it's not going to work that well. And then third is any additional steps they need to take to clear the area, to remove debris or thrombus, for example, or to uh, actually grind down some of the calcium that's in there so you can properly put the stent in. All those steps need to be informed by what you're seeing inside. <coughs> I've heard that um, stents may not actually do anything. Have you, um, will this allow you or other researchers to look at stents that have been in there for, you know, a month, six months, a year, five years, and see more accurately what's going on around the stent, how it's taken? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, this is a long-standing controversy. Uh, you know, I described two ways of showing up in the cat lab. Stents are life-saving technology. Uh, when you put them in, in a heart attack setting, when the physician is treating a patient that is showing up in the emergency room with a heart attack, there's plenty of data that says, yes, that setting, stents can, no, stents can save your life. Uh, in a stable patient who's been having a lot of problems, then you have to know who to treat to actually improve their quality of life and prevent any sort of events later. But, you, but it's hard to tell if you just go by the x-ray. If you just look at the x-ray camera and you look at the shadows uh, in these patients, it's really difficult. So there's additional technology that we make. Uh, one is looking at how the flow is behaving past that blockage. If the flow is still brisk and the blockage is intermediate, let's say 60%, which sounds like a lot, but you know, you could survive with 60% and never have a heart attack. So if the flow is not interrupted that much, then you really don't need a stent. And a lot of people use that technology that we sell to say yes or no to stenting. And that's been shown in a trial that if you examine the artery that way, you'll be, you'll be choosing patients who actually will benefit. The second thing is, uh, if you need to know how the composition of the artery is going to affect what you're going to do, then you go to the tomography that we're talking about here where you make much more informed decisions once you have decided that this patient should be stented. So you kind of uh, take it in tiers and first decide whether you should treat, then decide how to treat based on tomography. You think this is where the word ostensibly came from? Bad joke. Well, sounds like stents. I was joking. I was saying, <laughs> I think this is where, where the word ostensibly come from, but it doesn't. <laughs> That's a good one, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody debates the origin of the word. It's such a weird word, stent. But apparently there was a, a dentist many, many, many years ago. He used some sort of structure to hold together some, uh, some tooth work. And uh, he called, uh, his name was actually, his last name was a stent. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Huh. So that's so, where... Um, have, you, have you gone through, you know, someone's heart 
pre and post heart attack. And maybe now you'd be able to see a lot more about what's going on because you can get an accurate picture, not just of vessels, but are you able to clear chambers? Like, can you clear an atrium briefly to look at the wall structure or part of an atrium or a ventricle? Yeah, they, with a different technology, but you do, that technology has progressed quite a bit as well. There's um, a lot of um, echo technology that's uh, out now based on sound that you can get into the chamber and uh, you don't really have to clear the blood. You can see right into the chamber with, uh, with the sound. And then, you know, sound signals, you know, have you seen uh, ultrasounds that they do, for example, on, on pregnant women? It's not, it's getting better, but it's, you've got to really be trained to find the image immediately, right? Uh, well, same with the heart. And so what happens is a lot of progress have been made, has been made to real-time process the data so that you can clean it up, get rid of the noise, and present to the user a much more realistic picture of what they're looking at which is um, much better than what they're actually looking at because it's been processed according to algorithms that know what's good and what's bad and what to throw out. And so the image you get is much more accurate and it's much more um, anatomically correct, should I say, so that you can make the proper measurements and fit them with the right valve and then understand where the valve is going to go, if it fits or not, and how to, how to turn the catheter so it'll fit better. Many, many decisions that are well supported now by that technology. So... Yeah, this, this whole area of um, making more educated uh, uh, strategies around treating patients is gaining ground in many, many areas of, uh, of science and, uh, and medicine. Yeah, this is really cool. Um, can you do this in veins and arteries or only arteries? And how small of a diameter can you look at? Well, yeah, what, what, what happens is, well, the smaller side is controlled by the size of the catheter, right? So we could make a smaller catheter. We don't, but we could to look at smaller vessels. What ends up happening is that these very, very small structures um, are not that important because it's easy to create a new one. So the body gets around them by creating new vessels around and bypassing the sick one. And so the main problem with uh, coronary obstruction is in the larger vessels that are really blocking, say way upstream in the river, they're blocking that and affecting all the territory that is uh, downstream. That's where you need to focus. So for that, we have made this specific uh, OCT or tomography catheter that, that has a range more or less of from about two millimeters to about five and a half. Or, and that's based essentially on the intensity of the, of the laser and how far it can penetrate into the wall so you can see it. Uh, eventually, you know, things work out as um, they attenuate with one over R squared. So the bigger the diameter of the vessel, the lower the intensity you're going to get, and then pretty soon you lose sight of the wall. So, for example, the catheter we make, if you put it in an 8-millimeter artery around maybe your groin, it'll be way too big and you can't see the wall. And if you could, you only see the wall that's closest to the catheter and you, and you miss out on the other 70% of the others. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Oh, really? Wow. So, hmm. So in larger vessels, you can't really see is a sweet spot in terms of vessel size and diameter? Pretty much. You have to design the catheter for each range of diameter. And by doing that, you have to adjust the, the device size so you can get in and out. But you also, in the larger vessels, you have a lot more room for design. But you'd have to up the intensity quite a bit to be able to get through and into the wall and back to the catheter so you can interpret the signal. 
you can't make like a telescoping catheter where one is nested inside the other and it gets smaller and smaller to progress. You could, yeah. That would be uh, an ideal setting for a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Yeah, I can. You know that the other nuance about this too is that the type of physicians who treat the range of vessels that are somewhere between two and five is cardiology, and then the type of physicians who treat vessels that are, let's say, four to ten or twelve is typically either cardiologists who no longer do cardiology or also do peripheral circulation or cardiac surgeons who are also trained on how to treat all the other vessels or vascular surgeons. So it's almost like a different customer. So well, what about people that have like microcirculation problems or, you know, diabetic neuropathy, you know, in terms of the blood flow, would it be useful <laughs> to look and do we have other tools that do that? Yeah, uh, actually there there is a lot of technology emerging and we're creating a, a, a family of products that will go into that area. And it's, a, it's slightly different because microcirculation is, um, of course, getting a, device in the micro, and getting a device into the microcirculation is going to be almost impossible because we're talking now three cells diameter. It's really small. So the trick is going to be measuring flow rate in very small spaces. So we have technology that we're working on that will measure the flow rate, for example, in, uh, in your heart muscle. So one thing is to have flow in the main vessel. The main vessel does four millimeters in diameter upstream. And then that bifurcates and bifurcates and bifurcates until it practically disappears into capillaries that go into the heart muscle. And that's where the actual feeding of the muscle occurs. So you could either get into those teeny vessels, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't um, imagine that we'll be too successful in making a device that holds together that much and actually gets into all those. Vessels. So our best approach is to say, what's really important is flow. Can we measure flow into very small spaces and see if that works? And so what we're looking at is uh, coming up with a uh, way of monitoring either um, the direct flow rate based on different technologies that can measure it, flow velocity and area so you can calculate the flow rate, or looking at a pulse of a specific dye and watching it go away after you inject it. And with that, you could come up with a technology that works in very different, very different parts of the body, all which count on marker circulation. One of them is a myocardium. Another one is uh, your foot. Feet and neuropathy tends to come hand in hand with what's called diabetic foot and what's uh, called peripheral uh, critical limb ischemia. And essentially what it all amounts to is the very micro uh, small vessels that are distal in the foot, uh, one millimeter or less, tend to start blocking off. And once you have no blood flow to that area, you start uh, incurring bacterial infection and uh, wounds that will not heal because you don't have enough blood to carry enough of um, the inflammatory cells that will get rid of the, the infection. So a lot of patients develop wounds that get worse and worse and eventually end up with amputation. So there's room there for us to figure out what critical flow rates are necessary to, be, to uh, remain wound-free and then what additional technologies can we deploy to treat all the vessels before the foot, say behind your calf that are feeding the foot that may be blocked. So that's also a potential area of research that we're conducting, and that we're, but we're coming up with solutions to the proximal problem. 
coming up with stents that will work in your leg to prevent these wounds from progressing to a people. We're also going to be working later on figuring out this fluoride problem to see how to diagnose who can actually get worse and who can actually. All these are necessary. Can you can you, can you tell the um, if it's laminar versus turbulent flow, or if it's pulsed at a certain rate, which would tell you that there's uh, some kind of obstruction? You know, we talked a little bit about that in the on the coronary side when we said when I was telling you about this. Um, measurement of flow and how flow is affected in a stenosis as intermediate, that's exactly what we do. Yeah, if you have uh, laminar flow and uh, the flow is fairly brisk, then the pulsatility of the flow is very normal. Normal pulse pulsatility is textbook pulsatility. They declare healthy. If you have an obstruction, you start getting uh, turbulent flow. And turbulent flow also causes higher pressure drops. And so if you put pressure sensors in a wire, for example, and put one before and one after a stenosis, you'll be able to figure out that the pressure drop exceeds what normal should be. And then you know that that artery is in need of treatment. Uh, the same degree of understanding of what exactly is a, not enough or too much of a pressure drop for the coronary, which is a fairly advanced, is not there for the foot. So we'd have to develop a model that tells you What's too high, what's too low, and who needs treatment based on that. But that's the okay. next question. Can, can, you, can you image, um, like you said, a tissue and a capillary bed from the outside, just closer, you know, within a few inches and see more of what's going on inside of it? You can, but not capillaries. You, what you can do is measure vessels that are as small as two millimeters, but you'd have to use Doppler. What you do is you put a probe with a Doppler signal and you can tell the, the flow rate and you can also tell what's moving in what direction. So you can differentiate, of course, you know, this uh, uh, veins from arteries are going in opposite directions and you can make fairly accurate measurements of diameter as well because you can see how much, of fl how much fluid is moving in what width of area so you can actually tell the vessel diameter. Well, have you been able to look and see uh, through the wall of a given vessel and look at, you know, wall structure? Mm -hmm. and Has that taught you anything new? Yeah, with sound you can because sound can penetrate quite quite a bit. Uh, with light, is very very difficult because the skin will absorb most of the light, so it doesn't get that deep into the body and will never reach the vessel. But with uh, sound, you can very well. So, what kind of new things have you uh, discovered by using this device in terms of you know what's inside vessels that we didn't see before, you know, wall structure, etc. So for OCT, we're running a large clinical trial. It's going to be about 2,400 patients randomized between using angiography alone or x-ray alone to treat the patient and make all your decisions only with that information versus using that plus the tomography to figure out what the treatment strategy should be and then treat the patient according to that. So we're randomizing between the two, total of 2,400 patients. We are uh, almost there. We are um, approaching 2000, we need 24. And so we're gonna probably be there by February or so. And then we have to wait about a year to see how well or not these patients fare. And then after that, we analyze and publish the data. So we hope it's positive, of course. And uh, that'll tell us the clinical side of things, right? If you guide your strategy based on the tomography and the, lead and the detail you see in terms of morphology or the composition of the wall, on the detail, on the dimensions, et cetera, and then you can check your work at the end by doing one last look in there to see if the stent actually expanded correctly, if all the 
the wall is covered? If you do that, will the patient actually do better a year later? That's the big, big question, right? And that's already progressing. <clears throat> On the other hand, we implemented a project that was called uh, the Light Lab Project. If you, if you have to call the, ex, the, the cath lab something now, it will be the x-ray room. But we want to make light more prominent as a technology. So it's a light lab. Great. Uh, and so this is the practical side of things. If you guide yourself with tomography, how much more accurate is it really than uh, x-ray alone? That's the first question. And so the second question is, if uh, you did this, can you actually get uh, faster at doing your cases because you don't have to be guessing. You just essentially use the information right in front of your eyes and then see if uh, you could go faster. And so the first phase is accuracy. How often or not are you going to change your mind about something you thought you were going to do when you look at this tomography? And we, what we found is that 88% of the time, at least one aspect of the procedure was wrong and needed to be changed. So that, that's quite a bit. Um, yeah, that's a lot. It, it's surprising, right? You'd say, you know, the vast majority of people are just using x-ray. Yeah, and most of the time they're uh, making mistakes that the body tolerates. But results could be much better, I think. So, so when are you going to have, um, you know, a trial where you can see the one-year effect of, of these uh, more guided interventions? Uh, early in 22 because we will finish recruiting the patients in early 21, and then that one-year follow-up and publication comes in early 22, I would say within the first quarter, around March of 22. Yeah, what about um, blood, high blood pressure? Are you, have you looked at vessels that have been under high blood pressure for a while versus ones that haven't? Maybe there's more you know, wall differences, structural differences that are apparent now with this technology? We have not ourselves. Um, High blood pressure, of course, is a determinant of uh, who gets heart disease and who doesn't. It's not always a determinant, but it's a good determinant of who does. And what ends up happening is that having the arterial system under tension all the time because the wall being distended ends up thickening the wall and ends up making the wall susceptible to absorbing uh, fat from the, from the blood. And that eventually ends up as a lesion. So that's the normal understood mechanism. We don't know because of the variability and how much pressure who has and who's taking what for their blood pressure, it's really hard to tease out the direct effect of blood pressure on what we, but, uh, but it's there. It's definitely there. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Dr. Raposa, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and about Abbott and about the OCT device? There's a lot of um, information definitely on the Abbott website. Uh, so the, Literature, of course, if you uh, understand medical literature, it could be difficult, but, uh, but there's a lot of publications around the series of trials that have been done around OCT, and uh, they are called the Illumium trials. And uh, they uh, have looked at uh, the differences between people with angiography and without by the smaller sets, not in a randomized way. Later on, smaller trials were done with randomization, but now this is a big trial coming up in four. So it's a series of four trials. There's also um, a long history with imaging, not from Abbott actually, but from uh, ultrasound and other companies that sell that. And that has also uh, put in a big uh, light, but not really a sound, <laughs> on the on the importance of getting in and looking at the inside of the vessel decisions. So there's a lot of information out there on a technology called uh, IBIS, I, B as in Victor, 
U.S. IELTS. And uh, that's also interesting to read. Um, in addition, I think um, you typically have a lot of um, AHA and ACC, the American College of Cardiology conferences. This year is all online, so it's probably easy to get in and watch. Uh, any of the imaging technology uh, symposia that are run in those uh, you know, meetings, and they are also quite informative. Okay, very good. Well, Dr. Raposa, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. This has been great. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.